Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two excellent guests this week. First up is a, he's almost become a semi-regular for this podcast, and that is Adnan Virk, who has so many job titles at this point. College football, baseball tonight, he's a fill-in host for ESPN Radio, he has his own podcast, Cinephile. I believe he probably does some college basketball stuff as well. He usually is in studio, but because I'm in his beloved Toronto, and he is in my beloved, where are you at, Adnan? Avon, Connecticut, or Bristol, Connecticut? I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Central Connecticut, West Hartford. <laughs> yeah, he's in my beloved West Hartford. We are, um, we would, we are taping this in outside places. Adnan Verk, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Rich, thank you so much. This is rarefied air, is it not? Third-time guest, and I'm not Jimmy Traina, Jim Miller type. This is very exclusive, right? Yeah. And then, by the way, we're now back. Nobody will know that I just screwed up my little uh, segue there. But yes, I believe you are the th- you are the most gilded guest on this, on the combined podcast that I have done. Guest number three, Carissa Thompson of Fox Sports, Dave Meltzer, the famous wrestling journalist. They've, they've been on twice, but I don't think there is a third. Which, Adnan, my first question for you, and this sort of is a good segue here, is do you consider yourself a generational or transcendent talent? <laughs> so I listened to Joe Tessitore in order to prep for the podcast. It was unbelievable. Every single person that auditioned for Monday Night Football is a transcendent generational talent. He was refused to be critical, even though he said, well, I told you, Joe Thomas, and even Joe would tell you, he wasn't as great as maybe we thought he would be, but he's still great. He's still going to be amazing. First-rate broadcaster, funniest human being alive. No, I don't consider myself generational. But I was giving, by the way, Tess was great. Even every time he tried to pump him for information, he would respond with it. Was that reported? Like, he, he was so good. The Italian food, he had a Goodfellas reference, and he was right, by the way, when he mentioned about coffee beans, who knows the best espresso joint, you threw my name out there. He goes, I wouldn't trust Burke as far as I could throw him. He's right. I'm not a culinary expert. Jesse Palmer is the guy for that. But that was literally, they have master classes. I don't know if you've taken those, Rich, or Pellegrino. But I took Scorsese's master class, <laughs> David Mamet's master class. Joe Tessitore could do a master class in podcasting as a guest. That's how good he was. But uh, in order to your first thought, I want to throw this at you. I, I, the first time we did the podcast was because of pity. You felt sorry for me that I was har- haranguing you. So finally, you just gave me the invite, and I came to New York. We had a great time. The last time was because the Oscars were on, and clearly you needed some help because you thought the Post was going to win Best Picture, which was 100 <laughs> to 1 out of the time. Th- this time, I, I figured it out. I said, why is Rich having me on the podcast now? And I figured it out. Because of strained relations between our two countries, because of the issues of tariffs and taxes and such, you're thinking that... As you said, an American who lives in Canada, who is such a fan of Canada, you're a bigger fan of Canada than me and Jesse Palmer at this point, and myself, a Canadian living in America, who married an American, American-born kids, loves the American lifestyle. This is an attempt to bridge the gaps between our two countries and our political leaders right now. I think that's a really astute move by you. Yeah, you. I mean, that is absolutely the reason, Ed, and you found that out. Let me just say one thing about Joe Testator, who I thought was a terrific guest and I really, really like. If I asked Joe Testator about Saddam Hussein's tryout with him, it would have been the same. Listen, fantastic guy, a lot of potential. I mean, could definitely see him doing some big things. with It, it was great. I, I literally thought in my mind, I'm like, should I just throw out people who have not tried out with Joe, who are maybe just like sort of famous historically? 
you know, Rasputin, Joe, I know that he came to Bristol. He he stayed with you for a good like I, it would have been great. I don't know if, how Tess would have liked that and he would have been in studio, so it would have been Well we seem to get Kim Jong un next time to do a tryout with Tess. It's very unboxing too many things about that. That might be right. a little Well depending depending on of course depending on where our respective you know, where the respective countries we are living in now. I mean, that could either be an ally or, or an enemy. I have to I have to get the update well, on, on uh on Kim. All right, listen, Adnan, let's focus. There's more important things to do than for us to uh, get reacquainted on the air, and that is your contract extension. Now, I understand that these are very proprietary things and that you only want to go so far, but the, the reason I'm bringing you on today is because you are incredibly honest, and I think you could give listeners, particularly those who are young in the business who probably are about to maybe negotiate contracts, they've never done this before, or one day in their career will, I think you could give them some really interesting insight into what that world is like. So I'm going to ask you some questions that normally don't get asked of guests. I, if you have to, um, if you if you can't answer some of them, I, I understand. But if you can be as, if you could go as far as you could go, I think it will be educational for the audience. Do you agree? Do you agree to accept this task, Adam? <laughs> I do it with guarded optimism, knowing full well ESPN PR is hanging on every word right now. And this, this is a sink or swim proposition for me. But I appreciate the flattery. So I will do my best, to be honest, because you're right. I do think it's a fascinating process. By the way, I don't think there's any doubt that the second they hear this, Andy Hall and Josh Krulowitz are renting an Uber and they will be surrounding your house uh, <laughs> with like listening devices from like the Americans, like. Kerry Russell, like, you know, planting them somewhere throughout the, the Verk mansion. All right. So you sign a contract extension and these things, when they get announced, have already been done. So let's sort of just set the parameters. When was your prior contract up? What was the last date of that contract? Sure. So I started at ESPN in May of 2010 and the original contract I signed was a two and two. So that's a two year deal and you have a two year option, which the company holds. And they let you know with about a few months left within that initial two years, whether or not they're picking up the option, which they thankfully did. Uh, the second time around, I signed a four year deal. So this is now May of 2014. Uh, and that deal was elapsing in April 30th of uh, 2018, what we just had here. So that previous deal was negotiated in mid-September of 2013. So seven and a half months out, wow. I get a call from my agent saying, hey, listen, ESPN's made an offer. You're sitting down, ready to go? I'm like, yeah. It was a very generous offer. It com- completely blew me away. And then my agent is so good, he went and got even more money. And I said, great. It was, it was the easiest contract negotiation of my life. And um, it was one that I'd heard at times could be acrimonious or difficult, but it, was, it, went, it could not have gone more positive in the fact that it was more money than I thought it would be. My agent gets me even more. I'm like, great. I'm thrilled to be at ESPN. Obviously, I'm working on baseball tonight, which was my goal when I first started. It's my favorite sport. It's what I wanted to work on. And, and Mike McQuaid was generous enough to give me a chance, and we go from there. So this contract, again, is expiring April 30th, which just elapsed. And so I'm thinking in my head, and I said to my wife, well, it'll probably around mid-September, right? That's what happened last time. We probably should get an offer around then. Nothing in September, nothing in October, nothing in November. I checked in with my agent. He goes, yeah, listen, it's it's fine. Everything's good. Just wait till college football season is over, which makes sense. Let's just get through the, the busy part of the season. And then, of course, uh, John Skipper's resignation happens in December. And you go, oh, right. no. And uh, along with the fact that I'm very fond of John as a person, um, professionally, he was a real advocate for me. He was a real fan of my work. So, you know, you, you think of it twofold. One is that I hope he's okay, and I hope everything works out for him, and I'm going to miss having him as a boss and somebody who was a real sounding board and somebody who was always accessible. And two, 
this is a guy who really liked me. And I don't know if the next guy likes me as much or what the other executives think of me. So I don't know how this is going to go. So we finished college football season, and then there's no offer yet. And now, obviously, the company is in a bit of upheaval in that George Bodenheimer's takeover interim president. they got to find a new president. So I met with Rob Savinelli, I think in February, uh, who runs our talent office, just to check in. Because and I had heard that if ESPN doesn't retain you, that generally they'll let you know within 90 days. So meaning February 1st, if, if I got a call February 1st, I would know that probably I, I was up. Now, that's not official. I don't think they do it for everybody, but I always kind of heard that as a scuttlebutt that they try to give you a heads up. Because, listen, if the contract isn't renewed, you know, this isn't like you don't get a severance package. I mean, we're, we're literally on contract. There's no two weeks pay. There's no bonuses. There, that's it. Like when you're done, you're done. So I think that is uh, considerate enough of ESPN that if they can tell that, listen, these things aren't working out, let's give you a few months to go find another job. And that is in, in many ways a severance package. Um, right. So I didn't get that call. So I said, okay, that's good news. Hopefully I'm, I'm still in this thing. But I met with Savinelli, and he was very positive. He said, no, listen, you do a great job. Everyone here is really supportive of you, and nothing to worry about. These things just take time. Which is just, it's just, as, as I had said to you, a time of transition. All right, got it. So now we get to through February, get through Oscar season, we get through March. Now, now it's getting a little bit concerning. I'm like, all right, we've got about a month to go here, uh, and still no offer yet. And I, we went on a family cruise, Disney Cruise, middle of April. I remember prior to going, I checked in with my agent. I was just like, hey, listen, I'm going on this cruise. Like, is that okay? Like, I'm not going to have Wi-Fi. Like, I, you know, when, I, when I unplug, I unplug. Like, if there's any reason to get a hold of me, like, you know, send out some smoke signals. And, no, it's fine. We're going to be good. Everything's good. By now, Jimmy Pitaro has been announced as the president. So they're trying to work through all the contracts and such. Um, we go on the cruise, even after, like, three days. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever been with you and your wife and your twins, but you have, like, no service anywhere. And by the way, you know, like this, on the same cruises, like Chris LaPlaca of ESPN PR and Dan Graziano of ESPN. I'm like, oh, great. Awesome. See these guys at the gym every day. Awesome. But once you get on the land, like in St. Martin, my wife was the one who was like, hey, check your phone. I'm like, what? No, no, I want to keep my phone off. I don't need to find out what's happening in the world. No, no, no. Turn your phone. What if, what if, what if your agent's called? I'm like, huh, well, yeah, fair enough. So nothing yet. Um, we get back from the cruise. It's now mid-April. So we got two weeks now. And, and wow. I, this is what ends up happening. You start to think in your head, and you know this. Everything changes with kids. I got three young boys, 10, 7, and one and a half. And you start to say, okay, I think we're good. But you know what? Anything could happen. And, and maybe something's happened that I don't realize. And you start to get a little nervous. I mean, there, there was definitely some sleepless nights there where I'm wondering, maybe this one slips through the cracks. And they say, you know what? We're just going to go in a different direction. And, and everyone's replaceable. And and it does become a mind game because you say, listen, we're all well aware of the talented people who have left the company. Um, if, if this company can say goodbye to Jason Stark or Danny Canal or Andy Katz, and certainly Adnan Burke is expendable. Um, and listen, I looked at the list. My wife and I went through it. I started May of 2010. The amount of anchors, take a guess, Rich, how many anchors have left in eight years? Uh, I'm going to say 100. <laughs> not that many, but I think when I started, it was 50 anchors and 32 were gone. Like we're going wow. through Michael Kim's and Steve Bunin's and Deuces Rogers and Mike Yam and Steve Weissman. And like a lot of good friends over the years, guys who've been great, um, who are no longer there. So I, listen, at that point you go, maybe my name gets added to the list. You never know. Um, so thankfully we did get a call with about a week to go. And my agent calls, all right, we got the offer. Here's what it is. And I said, okay, um, you know, everything seems all right. Um, I think better we can do with the money. Like, it's good, but it, it is a raise, which is important at this time of day. But can we get a little more? He said, well, no, here's where it is. That's, that's probably most we can move it. I said, all right. Um, any, any other things that you want? And the one thing was travel, which in the previous contract, I had it as uh, I can get travel of uh, first class of, as long as the flight was three hours and above. 
So it led to an amusing time once where I was calling an Indians game, and, I remember, and they, they were correct at their job. The travel that it was like, listen, it's two hours and 55 minutes from Hartford to wherever it is to connect to Cleveland. I'm like, I can't get that first class. I'm like, mm, really sorry, I can't. And she says to me, she goes, just so you know, a lot of ESPN contracts are actually two hours and uh, over they get first class. And I was like, oh, okay, well, well it's just something to be, bear in mind for next time. So I was like, okay, and it was nice of her just to let me know that. Uh, so I said, listen, can we get the first class job? I don't mean to be uh, elitist about it, but when I came back for the national championship, for some reason, all the ESPN executives and all of us were on the same flight. It was like a 1025 back from Delta. So I, like, I'm talking to like Stephanie Drewley and like Connor Shell and Burke Magnus and Trod Keller, I'm sure, like, and, and Rob Savinelli. And then I was like, all right, time to board. And I'm going to like 34B with my buddy Lisa Stokes. And I'm like, all right, hey, next time, can, can I just hang out with them in the front too? Or I'll just find a different flight. You know, it's all good. It's just, we don't need to avoid that. So they took care of the travel, which was great, which anybody who's had the fortune to travel first class knows how generous that is, how nice that is. So that's good. Um, baseball play-by-play, I've done a few games and, I said, can I continue to do that? And the company said, yeah, sure, you can still do a few games. I know that's something you're interested in. We'll, we'll find spots for it, which is great, you know, five, six games a year. And the other thing was tennis. Now, this is a little bit tricky, and because I said, I've, I've met with Jimmy Reynolds before who runs our tennis department. He's great, and, and he understood that I'm passionate about tennis. And I gave him the whole rundown. Hey, my mom is from Pakistan but moved to England when she was 10, loves Wimbledon, loves tennis, all of mom's family still in London. Um, she passed on that love to me. Becker was my guy. I adore Federer. People know that because my social media. I just I would love to cover it. Even though years ago, Rich, I thought this is so far fetched. You'll remember the first time we did the pod when I saw L. John Wertheim, I lit up. I'm like, oh my god, I don't want to talk to him all night. Um, but Mike Tarico's owner gave me the idea when Mike left. I said, I just want to know one thing: How'd you get Wimbledon? Like you, you do Monday Night Football, you're doing the NBA. Like how did you get Wimbledon? I would think you'd have to be calling the Connecticut Open or Rogers Cup, that kind of thing. And Mike said, listen, I just said I'm into it. I'd like to do it. And I said, well, that must be nice if you're Mike Drake. I just call your shot. But Mike's advice was correct. And I say this to any aspiring broadcaster. If you don't tell your bosses, then how are they going to know? How would they know Adnan Burke's a big tennis fan? So I just said, listen, um, is there any way we can get tennis in there? And the answer was favorable, which was that, listen, Chris McKendry does an unbelievable job. Obviously, she's great. She owns the tennis. Uh, Fowler, obviously, in the call is wonderful. And, and I don't have any aspiration to to take anything away from either of them. I just want to be there. I don't care if it's court 19 and I'm on E3 calling matches with people who are relatively insignificant. I just want to get some strawberries and cream and breathe that, that London air. Um, and thankfully, ESPN was understanding to that. They said, listen, you know, we, we can't send you this year. There's no real slot for you, but we'll, we'll work to find a slot. And if there's a favorable opening for you that we think it's a good fit, then we'll, we'll do our best to make it happen. And I mean, that's, I think it's pretty unusual, man. Like, I don't think in most places you can say, here's a sport that I haven't worked on. I just, I just want to do it. And they're going to go, okay, like, we'll, we'll do our best to figure it out. So that was it. That was about a week to go. And then I think we kind of pushed back a little bit on just trying to get something else. I, I, may have, I don't know its specifics, but I will tell you this. April 30th, the deal's expiring at midnight. And I got a call. It was 6.45. I mean, like the ESPN calf getting my usual salmon and broccoli. And that's when I got the call that, hey, we verbally agreed to the deal. And I said, great. So now I can like, tell friends and family that kind of thing. I said, yeah. Uh, but I didn't actually sign anything for another week or 10 days after that. So I, like, verbal agreement, April 30, five hours from that, I guess I now have a new contract. I probably didn't sign the new one. I didn't get it in the mail until maybe May 10. Uh, probably signed it around, yeah, mid-May. So once you're locked in, you're good. But um, there's no doubt about it, man. It's, it's a tricky process, and you know it. For all the Canadians listening, there's, there's no agents in Canada. 
Uh, Anthony Ciccioni, my old boss at the score, who was such a good boss, it's so funny. He once said to me, if you ever show up in my office with an agent, I'll throw you out the window. Like, quite frankly, I made you in this business. I can, I can break you. You're 25 years old, and I gave you your first job uh, as a national sportscaster at the score. And we just don't do it that way. You know, in Canada, the negotiation would be, I'd walk in Anthony's office once a year, he'd go, all right, here's the number. Everything good? Awesome. Keep it up, Berkey. And that's not what it So uh, I know it's different for both sides, and some people don't like agents, Rich. I get that. They, uh, they, they use expressions like necessary evil, but I'll be completely candid. I think it's necessary, and I'll tell you why, particularly for me. There are people who are strong enough and confident enough and have good sources enough that they could go into an ESPN meeting with executives and say, okay, here's what I'm making. Here's what I think I'm worth, and, and then proceed to validate their argument. I am not one of those people. If I had to negotiate my own contract, they would, they would see me whimpering at the outset. They would say, Virk, we got thousands of ad. No, no, we have hundreds of thousands of Adnan Virks banging on our door. We can get somebody who's just as good as you, who's smarter, who's funnier, who's wittier, who's taller, who isn't losing his hair, who doesn't have a big nose, and we can do it at a cut rate. Agreed? I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so here's the number. Sign it and get out of here. I'm like, all right, perfect. So – I, I, I'm being somewhat facetious, but it is true in that that's what agents do. They have to know the marketplace and know what you're worth. And on my own, I really wouldn't know that stuff. So it's an interesting process in that you're removed from it in that I'm not a part of those conversations. Exactly what Tess said to you, like with Monday Night Football. Like he had no idea of it until he gets the call and that everything's pretty much in place. That part of it I like. Um, the fact that it's kind of hands-off, even though it's, it's my life and my career that's being dis- discussed and decided. All right, Adnan, there's a lot to go over there. Um, but I think the thing that I took most is that you don't like Lisa Stokes, basically, based on that, that story. Um, all right, now, hold on, Adnan. Like, yeah, we know, we know. Let's hang back here, 34B. 34B. All right, you love everyone. Here. So you, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of just trusting your agent so much to do the act of negotiation, even as it's getting closer to – the date where you're, you know, your your contract is up, you're not being paid. You have a very powerful agent in the business, a man named Nicholas Kahn, who is, um, who it works for CAA and represents ver- ver- a lot of the on-air power brokers of your network, from Mike Greenberg to Stephen A. Smith to um, Kirk Herbstreit, I believe I'm right, to, to many. I mean, this this is a guy who makes power lists he's negotiating with uh the the uh, the for the wwe i mean again this is a real player and was very close with skipper and i think probably knows jimmy pataro as well so you you have a guy and this this man nicholas khan has been mentioned many times in this podcast and i know he will it will eventually get back to him that he's mentioned and he doesn't like being mentioned so we'll mention his name again nicholas khan and so um <laughs> but clearly this is important in all seriousness you have an agent yeah. who has a lot of power at ESPN, so that that's some significant leverage. But I wonder, like, ha, as as talent, um, how how tough is it to just not be in the room when the details are being ironed out? You, you really have to trust your agent here, right? Because ultimately, in the end, the Skippers, the Savinellis, the Jimmy Pataros—they're not talking to you about you. They are talking to a third party about you. Yeah, no, you're 100% right, and that's why he's a great agent, and I do completely trust him. You know, I mean, I think that, that's the key, and you have to have that relationship because you're right. 
there have been situations where clients are, are leaving everything up to their agent. The agent makes that call and says, oh, here's the number. And they say, well, it's not good enough, right? I mean, I'm sure that happens. And the agent goes, well, it's the best I can do. And then what are you supposed to do? This is why sometimes there's turnover in the industry, that, that the client is unhappy. And, but again, I think a guy like Nick would be the first to tell you that he's going to do the best he can, obviously. But he'll, he'll help out the client needs. If a client ever said, well, I'm not pleased or that's not good enough, or tell Mr. Pitaro that this is the number that should be, that Nick would know how to massage it. I mean, you mentioned he's dealing with some major personalities there at ESPN. And I don't know if this is the first time you've heard this, but some anchors can be a little high maintenance. I mean, there there is some ego involved. I know I'm breaking news here. So a lot of us think the world revolves around us. So you're right. You do have to trust your agent. And the, the thing that, of course, complicates everything is the money. Like, you hear this often, oh, the anchor has this in his contract. But I've asked people, and they said to me, well, that's true, but... That isn't always the case. You, you cannot say, um, let's suppose in my contract it said I was going to host college football final, which I do. It, that, that isn't, by the way, written in my contract. But let's suppose it was. Well, that can always be changed. You can say, well, I'm sorry. We actually think somebody else is much better at the job than you. Like, these things are not, I think, as ironclad as people may appear uh, to be. And you know, even with myself, I'm always amused when people say, oh, I'm surprised you're doing this, or why are you doing this assignment? And I have to explain to them, I don't run the show, man. Like, they, I'm an employee. They tell me what to do, and I do it. After I signed the deal, Connor Shell told me, listen, I want you to start doing boxing. I'm like, okay, like, I'm in, great. And then I was with Joe Tessitore and Nick and top-ranked boxing people two weeks ago in Las Vegas uh, doing the Crawford Horn fight. I was with Andre Ward and doing the pre-fight coverage, and it was a blast. I mean, that's something that's bucket list. Be able to do a fight in Vegas. I don't know if you ever covered a fight in Vegas, which I would SI or, or otherwise, but I mean, that is a cool atmosphere, the, the build-up to it. Um, it's special, and that's not something that I saw on the horizon. That's not something that I thought was going to happen. It's not something I asked for, um, but this is something that, for some reason, they, they thought would be good for me, so I did it. So I think you're right. You do have to have that implicit trust, and, and, and money is the one that complicates things, right? There's no question about it. And so let me, let me, let me, I didn't interrupt people, you, but I want to I I yeah. interrupt you because I, I want you to stay focused on this. How much are you sure. impacted? You, 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 whether you're reading salaries in like the Hollywood Reporter or elsewhere, sure. or you just learn about other salaries just from being around ESPN, how much does that impact you in terms of what you're talking to your agent about? Like, again, I think you recognize that you're not going to get paid what Mike Greenberg is getting paid or what John Gruden was getting paid. But you you start right. to become aware of what other people with your similar kind of on-air dates get, hosts, sports center anchors, et cetera. So how much does yeah. that factor in when you're talking to your agent like, hey, I know that person X is getting this. I kind of would like to get this too. The honest truth is this, and this is a betrayal of my middle class, middle class upbringing, liberal sensibilities, son of immigrant, but it does factor into it. No question about it, because it's, it's kind of what George Clooney once said about being an actor. He goes, it's never that I thought I was that good, but I would see other guys getting work and say, well, I'm at least as good as that guy. And similarly, I feel the same way as a broadcaster. I don't, I swear, Rich, I think I'm competent. I think I'm thoroughly unspectacular. But it's your fault and it's Jim Miller's fault. Once they throw out money, you go, hang on a second. I'm going to make this sucker rain. I got three boys. We want to go get a yacht. We want to go to Lake Ontario sometime. And there's no question that you're not in it for the money, but the money's nice. And, and, and of course, you want to get fair market value. I, I will tell you this. When I, when I got the money, I called my mom to tell her. And her reaction was, what happened? Like, rather than excitement, she's clearly reading too much of you on The Hollywood Reporter. She thinks I should be making more. And I said, Mom, 
I got a raise. I make good money. I love what I do. I work with terrific people. This is good news. Thankfully, Papa Burke thought, as I did, was like, this is great. I'm thrilled. Awesome news. You know, slow and steady wins the race. You're in this for 30 years. Great, great, great. Um, but I do want to say, because of those numbers that you, like you said, people throw those numbers out there. I have my buddy Puffy in Toronto text me, are you making a million bucks? If I was making a million dollars, I have gold teeth. I would go get uh, the Miami Hurricanes turnover chain and wear it for an entire week on ESPN and say, well, I've got a contract. I can do what I want. Like it's, I think everybody always thinks we make more than we do. When I first married my wife, she thought I made a lot more than I did. She goes, I think just people think odd TV. You're just, because as you said, those major names, and they're worth that money. You can argue that because of the value they bring to the company. You hear those numbers, and naturally you say, well, if five or six people are making that, and this guy, Virk, hey, I think he's pretty good. He does college football, he does baseball, he does college basketball, he does radio, he does cinephile, et cetera. Well, he's not making that money, but he should be within shouting distance. But there's a few factors that go into it, one of which is the marketplace. You know, I don't, I don't know for those specific people that make the, you know, the top 1%, but are there competitors, right? Are there people out there who are trying to lure their services? That's obviously a major component. If somebody is willing to make a splash and offer big dollars, that would drive up your own price because either ESPN would say, all right, we're willing to, to play ball and match that, or we're just going to keep you where you are. And that's not to say ESPN only makes a move because someone else does. They're still willing. Like I said, I did not get an offer nowhere else. I still got a raise. They still recognize that, that I do a good job, at least in their estimation, which is a subjective business. Part of it, too, like I said, though, the market determines it. Timing is huge, Rich. I, I could say I want to cover the NHL. But the NHL is on NBC, and, and Liam McHugh does a great job, and Mike Tirico is, gets involved sometimes, and, and obviously Doc Emmerich, their whole crew. So I can't just all of a sudden unilaterally say, well, I should be doing this, so let me just call NBC, and all of a sudden I want to start doing hockey. Like, it, it doesn't work that way. So in answer to your question, do you hear the numbers? Does it impact you? Absolutely. Um, but it's important to have tunnel vision. And the best advice I got on this was from Dan Lebitard, who texted me afterwards, and I said, and I did exactly what you're saying. I go, you know, it's a little bit tricky sometimes. You hear that person A makes this much, and you say, well, I do more than that person, or person B makes this much, well, I do a lot more than that. And Dan's text was completely accurate. He said, that's a recipe for unhappiness. He said, we are all overpaid for this, and ESPN makes us not the other way around. That, that could, truer words have never been texted to me. And even Scott Van Pelt said to me, you're never going to get the number you think in your head, okay? Whatever number you think, it's not going to happen. But if you do a good job, you treat people well, um, you're a person of integrity, respect, then you can live with that. And you're still making a very good living. That's what you have to recognize. If you get caught up in numbers and start trying to compete with everybody, it's like that great line in the movie Network, one of my favorite films, when the, <laughs> the woman said, Faye Dunaway says to, uh, uh, to the anchor, William Holden, she goes, you know, I didn't mean to impugn your coxmanship. And he says, I stopped comparing genitals when I was in grade school. Like, you, you have to get to a point in life where you say, I'm just focused on me. And as tough as that can be, that's the best approach. Yeah, it's very good advice from Levitard. And we are in this sort of business talking, at least when it comes to on-air at ESPN. I mean, you're talking into the high six figures anyway. It's all basically absurd high school playground money. And so, you know, if you sort of do it right, everybody's doing well. Um, that said, Adnan, I, again, this is something that, uh, again, might be a little tricky for you to answer. I do want to ask it anyway. And that is... How much do I things, make? That's what you're going to ask me? No, no, I'm not going to ask you how much I make. That's the one thing I'm actually going to uh, not ask you. I mean, you know, if you want me to guess, I probably can guess, you know, you're, you're in the, the, the mid... Uh, six-figure, you know, mid-lower six-figure category. But no, I, I, I you're uh, as a generational talent who's coming on my podcast. I, I'm not going to make you answer that question. My one gift to you. I, I will be asking Tessator though every time 
though, uh, just to see what see what. This is why I want to pull the Joe Tessitore. See, see how he doesn't answer. That I right. cooked for Jared Allen when I when kids came over to my house. Joe, how much do you make? Uh, let me tell you about a delicious ragu, Richard, and that's basically what. Uh, <laughs> What, 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 what will happen? You, you slice the garlic just like in Goodfellas. I'm telling right, you, Rich, right. it's incredible. Ask Pellegrino. I've got more family in Toronto than I do in New York. I know. I love that. That was a good drop by Joe to, to try to connect with me on the uh, on the Canadian angle. All right. So adding in again, let's focus. One of the things that I know, for, th- this I know for a fact, is that John Skipper, and he probably, in my opinion, should not have been doing this in his position because it's sort of uh, it throws off the entire organization, but he would sometimes get involved in negotiations and let people know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to resign you. Don't worry about it. When the time is right, we're going to make it work. I'm going to make you whole, etc. Clearly, John Skipper has a great relationship with you, values your work. And so I wonder, does your negotiation, does it? do you ever get into post-Skipper? Like, does Jimmy Pitaro... The new head of ESPN call you. Are you aware that he is aware that you are negotiating? Or do you think this happens, at least for yours, does it happen at a level much lower than the president of ESPN? Because I know for a fact that Skipper was involved in some negotiations, at least to the point of assuring the talent that the talent would be would be taken care of and that we want you here. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think if I know it's tough when we're dealing with hypotheticals, but I think if John Skipper was still the president of ESPN. And if no offer had come after college football and I'd emailed John and said, do you have a few minutes? He would have said, sure. And I think you're right. I don't think we would have discussed numbers, but he would have said, listen, you're going to be fine. I'm a big fan of your work. We're going to get this thing done. I think that is absolutely true that he would be involved to at least offer verbal assurances. Um, And and if need be, as you said, if he needs to actually get involved with uh, rolling the sleeve and get the numbers done, he would be willing to do that too. Uh, In terms of Mr. Pitaro, I haven't met him yet. I did think about that. I said, should I... Should I reach out and what happened? By the way, like, Adnan, you know, you know, you know, he's met Van Pelt, Beetle, Greenberg, and Rose. I'm just uh, as your agent, I, I, I would, <laughs> well, I would advise you maybe way, to when, get in there. Well, how about when Tesco's? You want me to call him right now? Like you knew he could have called Jimmy Pitaro right at that moment. Right now, you you're yeah, you're the subject. You're the subject of the next The Hollywood Reporter column. Why has Adnan Verk not met Jimmy Pitaro? <laughs> So I don't have his cell. I've never met the man. I know he's a huge Yankees fan. Apparently he's loved Greg Nettles, so that's good that he loves baseball. I, I, that will be my <laughs> opening uh, comment to him. Hopefully he's fond of Canadians and likes watching movies as much as I do. But, no, I had no um, re- interaction with Jimmy at all during the process. As I said, after we'd signed the deal, I was summoned by Connor Shell, uh, who's a very important executive who loves movies, which is a great yep, – uh, He does. Former, uh, former, head, of, uh, uh, of he former head of ESPN yeah. Films and uh, – in my opinion, sort of objectively, really bright guy, excellent guy to have a conversation with, and really loves filmmakers. This is why you two would get along, because he, I think, is more comfortable in a room of documentary filmmakers than he would be in a room of, uh, you know, Dick Ebersol types. Uh, that couldn't be a truer statement. Literally, he summoned me to his office a couple weeks ago in New York, and all I'm telling him about is the fact that I went to the Sundance Film Festival, first time this year for Cinefile. He's been to Sundance. I, I was actually on the jury of the Greenwich Film Festival, which he told me he went to last year. Rosillo hosted a panel with Mad Dog, because that's when the Mike and the Mad Dog documentary was coming out, the ESPN film. So, so you're right. He's very much in that world and, and, like you said, passionate about filmmakers and that whole creative arts, which is important. But, yeah, he's the only one that said to me, hey, listen, congratulations on the deal. I'm glad we got it done. You know, Here's what I want to see moving forward. So I was like, that's awesome. But I, I right. will at some point probably just email Mr. Pitaro and just say, hey, listen, I'd just like to, to meet you and just to say hello kind of thing. By the way, I love uh, you, you. Sort of mentioned Rosillo. He's now obviously trying to be a screenwriter in Los Angeles. 
He's uh, half the time seems like living in Carissa Thompson's house. And he's truly like, I almost feel like Russillo, Russillo could have his own. There could be a script about Russillo right now. Would you agree? I mean, eventually he's going to move into some, I listened to some podcasts he did with Manpel, like some $2 million beautiful house on the beach. But the guy, the, the, he, the, he, he, what he is do what he has been doing the last couple months, I feel like Adnan is the basis for not a bad screenplay. Let me tell you this, Rosillo. First of all, I don't know. Is it Pellegrino that does the write ups for your pod? Because I haven't listened no, to I, Chris. No, I do yet, the I, I do the write ups, and Pe- Pellegrino uh, Pellegrino does the editing, and he's the ma- the master behind the um, how the podcast sounds. But no, the write ups are the write ups are yours truly, okay. my friend. Because I scanned the Carissa one yesterday as I was searching for the ones to listen to to prep for this interview, and I obviously listened to Tess. But Carissa, Look. part of the write-up is why Ryan Rossillo is like her house guest. So you might as well just say, why is he Kato Kalen at this point? So I, I have to go back to listen to what Carissa said about Rossillo, but I'll tell you about the script. He's written two of them. He texted me a month ago and goes, do you want to read the one that people think is boring, or do you want to read the one that people love? And I said, well, I, I got three kids, but I don't have time to read the boring one. Give me the, give me the good one. I read it on that flight to Las Vegas for the fight. Rich, it's terrific. I'm telling you right now, I don't know how the hell Ryan Rosillo had 12 hours in his day to watch NBA basketball and then do his three-hour radio show and his podcast and do sports internets and still bang out a script this good. It's terrific. I I think I'm probably forbidden from actually saying what it's about, but uh, I will just say it could be like a serialized show. And I mean, I love movies, but everyone tells me, yeah, golden age of television right now. It. It's an excellent concept. It's very good dialogue. Like I'm a mammoth guy. I love Aaron Sorkin. And I said, some of these dialogue, like I gave him specific lines. He goes, yeah, he goes, yeah, it's getting good vibes. So I, I don't, I'm not going to predict he's the next uh, Patty Shayevsky, um, but I'm telling you, it's a really good script. Good for, good for Russillo. I, I listen again, he, you know, he's in a position where he could walk away from an ESPN. I'm sure he's got a lot of money banked. He's obviously still doing his podcast. He can get work. So, you know, it's all relative. That said, I like what he did. He actually decided to just sort of change up his career, go for something uh, as he hit his 40s that uh, a lot of people would not have gone for. Now, he could do that. I don't think he's married or has kids, so he's got that mobility. No. But good, good, good for him to try to take the shot and do that. I appreciate that. And again, the one time he was on my podcast, Adnan, and I know you heard that, it was probably the close. That was the closest to a what I would consider a therapy session of any interview I've ever done. There, there have been people on the podcast who I think have, um, you know, Carissa in particular, uh, two weeks ago uh, was incredibly emotional and broke down at a moment. But that Russillo interview, I'll never forget, just because I clearly caught him on a day where he was beyond contemplative. It was clear that he was thinking about leaving ESPN. He had felt, and I think rightly so, that the company had sort of screwed him a little bit by moving his show and making it clear that there were other personalities they wanted in his slot. You don't have to get into that, but it was it was, it was was interesting. Um, all right, last one on this sort of uh, Adnan Verk contract, and then we'll do like one or two quick other things, and I'll get you out of here. Um, you, we, you work in a, I guess I do too, but we work in a business where so much of the evaluation is subjective, it is basically someone's opinion of what you are doing. It's the objective part may be ratings, but the subjective part is just basically decision makers thinking that you are you are good at your job on air. What's that like in terms of Adnan of, of always, and I'm getting a sense of this myself, obviously, when I'm working for uh, 590 in Toronto, is what's it like to to always wonder what someone else is thinking of you? And, and that ultimately is, 
what what the what the ju- you know you may think you're doing a good job, but in the end, it's such a weird business because it's all subjective. It's all about what the people who sort of control your airtime, your salary, et cetera, think of your work. It's a great question, Rich. I've given it so much thought. I think about it all the time. And it's why the Larry Sanders show is my favorite sitcom of all time. And I don't know if you've seen the Judd Apatow documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, but it's so good because he chose the brilliance of not only Gary in that show. And Conan O'Brien said, he goes, you know what that show nailed more than anything else ever was that combination when you are in radio and on air, when I'm in television on air, it's that combination of, man, I love this. I can't get enough of this. And I've got to get out of here. <laughs> like it's that duality of this is, a, this is such an odd job. Like I am being judged by other people. I have no control over what they think of me. I, I may think I'm doing a good job and someone else may think I'm terrible. And that's what's going to determine my fate, the whims of one person. You mentioned Rosillo, how and he's always authentic and he's always going to let it ride. But you're right. I think that day when you spoke to him, he was particularly contemplative. There, there's no doubt certain times you find a guy on a certain day and he's really willing to go. Similarly, imagine if one of those shows you're doing with Bob McCowan, who's a legend. Everyone knows how great Bob is. And suppose the twins had you up and you're just busy with other things and financial issues happen to everybody. And that one show, Dave Cadeau's listening, is like, mm, I'm not sure if Dice is working out. Like, <laughs> that thought, if you, if you start to go into that mindset, Rich, that is terrifying to think one bad show can all of a sudden undermine me in my career. So I... There's, there's multiple aspects to it. One, I always think of the DiMaggio line. He was hurt later in his career, and somebody asked him, Joe, why do you try so hard? And he said, there might be somebody out there watching me for the first time. I know that's hokey and sentimental, but I do think of that. There might be somebody who's never heard of me. I still get tweets from people in Canada goes, oh, I have no idea what happened to you. I thought you got fired by the score. I just saw you on ESPN. I'm vacationing in Florida. Good for you. So not everybody's aware of your world. Kind of like with the contract. When I was wondering why isn't ESPN offering something? Your employer has a thousand other things they're more focused on than how you did on that show that day. So when I'm filling in with Mike Golick and Golick and Wingo wondering, why isn't anyone praising my work? Trust me, they've got a thousand other things to worry about. And if you don't hear any news, well, that's good news, kind of like an umpire in baseball. Um, but there's no doubt that when you're, you're at the behest of somebody else, it's, it's concerning. But Steve Coolius, speaking of Canadian legends, does a great job on Sirius Now. He worked on the score. He told me Ernie Harwell's advice in broadcasting, and you know this now too. Now that you've made this transition as writer to broadcaster, he said when you first start, people aren't going to like you. They're going to criticize you, and whether it's right or wrong, they're just going to find fault with you. But after five years, it doesn't matter if they like you or they hate you. They just get used to you. And I think that's the case with me. I mean, it's been eight years now at ESPN. And I think now, for better or for worse, it's six years on baseball tonight. It's five years on our college football coverage. It's seven years filling in on the radio. I'm sure to some, they say, God, this guy talks too fast, and I hate his take on movies, and he's not interesting, and baseball's an old person's game, and why does he want to talk about hockey? But there's enough people that go, eh, I'm just used to this guy. Like I, I know what I'm getting with him. And I think oftentimes it's as simple as that. And, and I think this is the most important thing, no drama. I think I've worked now in television for 20 years. I started in May of 1990 as an intern with the likes of the great James Duffy and David Amber and Rod Smith and Darren Detish and all those stars who were so critical and so kind to me that said, one day you're going to be on air. You're going to do what we do. When I was 20 years of age, it was so nice of them to be able to see that in me. And I've been on air now. It'll be 16 years in September. And if there's one thing I've noticed through Omni Television, through Rogers Television, through TSN, through The Score, through ESPN, no drama. If you're somebody who just comes to work and does a good job and doesn't complain, if you're not somebody who's perpetually annoyed, 
then you can hang in there a lot longer than people realize. That may be even more important than talent. I swear to God, I think that there are people out there who are thoroughly average, but they are great employees. They, they come in early, they're respectful, they're nice, they're kind, and their employer may say, you know what, I got a tape of somebody else better, but naturally you're going to go with loyalty and you go with people who are genuine and sincere. And I think that maybe that sounds like a Pollyanna, but I think that even though the business is subjective and can be cruel and unfair and unrelenting, there's no doubt about it. I think if you hang in there and treat people well, you'll have a longer stay than you realize. Uh, 100%. There are some companies that sort of have a no-asshole policy, which is basically not to hire any assholes. And if you if you can do that on your staff uh, and, and not have drama and not have people sort of who are always complaining or who are always sort of being political within the organization, I think there is something to that. I think you could last. And I, I must ask, though, how frustrating is it that no matter what you do in your career, you will never be as successful as a former score employee than Renee Young, the great WWE announcer? <laughs> well, here's the other part of it. No matter what, what the mountains you scale, there's always somebody doing better than you. So just as when Mama Burke, who's worked tirelessly her whole life and hears about her son making six figures, this ludicrous amount of money to talk about sports and says, what happened? As if we should have a funeral for the fact that I'm not making unsold riches and making it rain. Similarly, whenever I look up and see the heights that Renee Young has scaled, I realize within the score hierarchy, I'm actually quite low. Uh, honestly, Anthony Ciccioni, that, that was like the 94 Expos in Italian. Elliot Friedman, who you, and now you know all these people really well. Yes, you know how talented right. Elliot Freeman's enormous. He's hockey in Canada, for God's sakes. Amber's the only guy that can say he's worked at Hockey in Canada, ESPN, and PSN. Like, by the by the way, you'll like this. David Amber literally yesterday. We're taping this on. Um, we're taping this on June twenty first. So on June twentieth, David Amber took me out to lunch. What a great guy. Could, he did super, super great. Oh, he did. Awesome. Yeah. He literally reached out and said, "You want to? You want to? You know? I know you're trying to. You know? You probably want to meet some people in Toronto." And literally, like texted me and said, let's meet up at this place, and uh, could not have been nicer. Phenomenal guy. I don't mean to pull a tessitore, but generational talent. I mean, you, you won't find a better guy than David Amber, and the people still at East can talk about his prowess in softball. I mean, the guy would hit tape measure home runs. Da- by the way, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Da- da- David Amber, seriously, th- I mean, he, he's that clearly in his 40s. This guy looks like he, he walks out of, like, men's fitness. It, it's absurd. <laughs> he's walking around, like, jacked. I, I mean, it is like I'm, uh, you know, I'm feeling like uh, I'm trying to think of like who the ninth person is on like one of those great Bulls teams, but he's Jordan walking around, and I'm like, I'm not even Will Purdue. It's like it's it's rough to be around this guy. You're Bobby Hansen. Yes, that well said, Lou. <laughs> right. Pellegrino's been silent. I'm Jim. I'm Jimmer for dead in the G League. Yes, that's correct. No, but listen, to your point, Rich, this is actually raises an excellent point for aspiring broadcasters out there, because I was of the opinion that you could just look like me and be on TV, and it wouldn't matter the regards to physical fitness. And this is actually great advice, courtesy of, again, Anthony Ciccioni. I was heavier when I was younger. I was always a lot of shape. I never exercised. I'm that guy who just, you know, was like, wanted to watch movies and eat popcorn late at night and milk duds and the rest of it. And Ciccioni told me in my late 20s, one time I said to him, uh, it's not that important what you look like as a sportscaster, right? We, we're not the athlete. We're just covering them. You can be whatever you want. You can be a schlub, and it's fine. And Ciccioni, without missing a beat, he was looking at something he was writing. He goes, yeah, it's only the rest of your career. And I, I took that to heart, and he's right. He goes, why would you give somebody a reason? If they said, Adnan Virch is a pretty good job, but he's about 30 pounds overweight. We just want – he goes, are you nuts? Like, of course that's part of the job. It's television, for God's sakes. Your hair and teeth. You're telegenic. Like, obviously you're not handsome. 
But if you were unattractive, if you were unappealing, then I can't put you on TV. And you're right. When I see someone like Amber, I think he's just always been in incredible shape and he works out feverishly and obviously has a great diet. But it is something to be said for anybody who thinks, well, I can just show up and be on TV. No, no, no. The more you look like an athlete, the better chance you're going to have to work in sports. And I didn't yeah. even appreciate that when I got to ESPN. Rich, give me one guy at ESPN who's out of shape. I remember well, when I walked in there, I, I, think I, you I looked can, I, and I go, geez, everybody here is in good shape. Yeah, I think here's what I this is, and this is where the the business, in my opinion, is incredibly sexist. They do let men age on air, and particularly in sports TV, whether it's Berman or people like that, where you don't often, although ESPN is better than most, you don't often see women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, nearly at those numbers. So while I agree with you, I, I do think they're clearly it's telegenic. Obviously, it's a looks based business. I think things do change if once you get established and get into your 50s and 60s, you, the, 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 the rules do not apply for men the way they do for women. Again, this is not to knock the guy, but like you can be Vern Lundquist and, and call games in your 70s um, where we're not going to see the female equivalent. So that would be my only quibble with your point is, yeah, I think in your 20s and 30s, there's probably you're, you've got a sense of that, but there, there are they do in sports television at least management they allow men to age on air where r- very rarely do we see women age on air. We don't get as many uh, Linda Cones, Leslie Vissers, and they also have to deal with so much more shit because of that than men. That would be my my take on that. No, you're right. There's definitely a double standard. There's no question about it. And you're right. The people like Linda Cone, that's why she's incredible. I mean, again. 1992 Alco started. We did a sports center a couple months ago. I'm like, that's a living legend, okay? And, I mean, she's unbelievable. And you're right. If you had, if Linda, Linda's written a book for us, called Conehead, it's great. But if she had to write a book just about the amount of sexism and abuse that she's taken, she's got thicker skin than anybody. So you're absolutely right on that point. All right. And let's just, we should end the podcast on me. We should just have the tagline, you are absolutely right. I'm going to have Pellegrino drop that into every podcast now, basically, uh, whenever, uh, you know, whenever there's a heated conversation. All right, Adnan, there, I have so many other things I could get to. Mike Hoffman, um, last time we talked about um, your comfort level and talking publicly about your Muslim faith and discussing Islam yeah. within ESPN social media. So I, I think if we went into these topics now, and then we'd have an, we'd have to go like another hour. And I don't, I don't want to. Uh, one, I think it's it's it would be too much for the audience. And two, uh, I do have another conversation coming up with Calvin Watkins, who's I mean. He is the uh, Dallas version of Adnan Burke, if you will. I just I'm made sure Calvin Watkins is great. How many, do me this, Rich. I want to do two things. I want to tell you one thing about Muslim athlete, and I want to do one Chris Chalio story, and then I'll get out of here. Deal? All right, that's fine. Of course. Okay, here's the story I want to tell you. But most- because i got to get it from my phone. But you asked me a question last time. It was excellent. I didn't give you a good enough answer, which was how are Muslim athletes covered right now in the world? So I finally have a better answer now. Okay, and credit good. to your former Sports Illustrated. So Mo Salah plays for Egypt. Those who don't follow soccer, he's unbelievable. He's a star striker for Liverpool. As I mentioned, all my mom's family's in England, so they're obviously big EPL fans. So I follow it through them tangentially. Now, Mo Salah, unfortunately, got hurt in that big Champions League game, and now Egypt is out. But... This is a fascinating stat, or tidbit, excuse me, that was in SI. As, Sol, as Salah's goals piled up this season, you could hear a chant sung to the tune of the 1990s Brit pop hit Good Enough by the band Dodgy. I'm not familiar with the song, by the way. I'm sure Max Bredos is. Radiating from the Anfield stands. Mo Salah, la, la, la. Mo Salah, la, la, la. If he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me. If he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim too. If he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me. 
sitting in the mosque, that's where I want to be. Mo Salah la la la, Mo Salah la la la. At a time when Britain is fighting rising Islamophobia, the outpouring of affection for an Egyptian national superstar who is proud and public about his Muslim faith cannot be understated. I found that to be unbelievable. And my dad, who I adore, who is not a sports fan, but he loves soccer, loves the World Cup. Mom said he's watching every match, three matches a day. The guy worked two jobs in his life, literally most of his life, and now since he's retired, he just wants to watch soccer. He texted me the other day. He goes, did you just see Mo Salah? He's, they lost 3-1. But he goes, he did such that after the goal. I want to explain this. In, in Obviously, Christian faith, you see someone cross themselves. We all know what that is after a big moment or et cetera. You're, you're praising God. You're praising Jesus. Sajda is part of the Muslim prayer when you actually bow down. So what Mo did after he scored, it was on a penalty kick. He pointed first to the sky, so points to God, and then went down to his knees and bowed down and did Sajda, S-A-J-D-A. And I said to my dad, I said, that's amazing. Think how many people are watching the World Cup. And maybe most will say, okay, I don't know what he's doing. He just would have dropped to his knees. But anybody who actually goes, wow, that is a truly proud and public expression of one's faith. Before a big fight, Ali would hold his hands forth or the boxing gloves and do du'a, D-U-A, which is silent prayer. You know, and then after just say amen. That, that he would do. Before Akim Elijahwan notably fasted during Ramadan. He would fast. He was not eating or water or drink during uh, daylight hours, which I just did, by the way, and I have no reason to be cranky or irritable because he was actually playing in the NBA. I'm sitting in my house trying to avoid mowing my lawn because I'm parched of thirst. And Mo Salah is then giving a very public display of his faith. I, I think that article nailed it, Rich, at a time where there's such sensitivity about Islam and there's so many misinformation. I don't think you can overstate a guy like Mo Salah, who is beloved right now because he's a star athlete, how he can single-handedly change perceptions of Muslims. I thought it was an amazing moment. Yeah, that's I. That's really, really well said. And he, uh, Mo Salah, has been incredibly impactful in um, in England and in global soccer. On on, I think the perception. Uh, that's not the, really the right phrase, but yeah, I, I think he has really given he's given some people who probably wouldn't be thinking about this in in England. Like uh, he's humanized. He's hu- He's there, there's so much. Um, I'm sort of, sort of really not doing a good job of this, Adam. But he—he—it's important when when you have an athlete who is who is unapologetic about what his religious beliefs are, and and is and is unapologetic and really devout to the point where you can't help but stand up and appreciate that and respect that, even if that's not your religion. I think that is incredible power, and I think that's what Mo Salah has done in in the. In the UK, well, at least that's my well, think sort of, of interpretation. Yeah, of it. no, it's a great take. Nazim Khatri is Muslim. He plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs, which you are now going to be covering day in and day out to nauseating oh. fervor. <laughs> the, the, the average Maple Leafs fan is going to go, "Yeah, Nazim Khatri is Muslim. I don't care. Just I'm glad he's a better two way forward now that Mike Babcock is the head coach." Period. If if the fans there actually started chanting, "If he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me," the mosque, that's where I want to be. Like, that's amazing that that's happening right now in England. If that happened in Toronto, which, as you know, is as multicultural and diverse a city, to have the fans chanting, I want to be in the mosques, too, I'll be Muslim, too, that's unbelievable. I agree. All right, what is your second, the second thing you want to leave us with? I have a Chris Chelios story, which you're going to love. Pellegrino, listen in. I'm flying back from Mexico. This was May 7th. I'm wearing a Canada hat. This is important to note. I'm reading the Tiger Woods biography, which I got from Armin Katayan. Terrific book. You should all read it. Jeff Benedict. I'm wearing a nondescript black T-shirt, shorts, flip-flops. Usual travel attire. I hear a couple of guys talking in mid to late 30s. 
One turns to the other, turns to me, and says the mortal words, excuse me, Mr. Chalios, can I get a picture? I look up. I have a fraction of a second in which I realize I should tell him I'm not Chris Chelios. I, of course, <laughs> ignore that impulse and say, sure, no problem. I stand up. I get a picture with the guy. He turns to me and says, man, this is going up on the mantelpiece. Somehow I did not break character that I'm Chris Chelios and start laughing in his face. Instead said, oh, are you guys big Blackhawks fans? Because that's about you. I think Chelios think Blackhawks. But then I quickly corrected myself, realizing I'm in Detroit. I said, oh, Red Wings fans, right? They're like, oh, yeah, I love the Red Wings. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we had some good years there. As I was talking, I realized I know Chris Chelios. I covered the World Cup 2016 with him at ESPN with Brett Hall. And Chelios actually at one point said to me, you know, we do kind of look alike, kind of look alike. I don't think I get spotted for him in an actual airport by two grown men who are supposed to be giant Chris Chelios fans. They then asked me if I'm boarding the same flight as they are to Nashville. I say, no, I'm going to Hartford. If I was really smart, I would have said, no, I'm going to go visit Pete Storkowitz, former whaler, good friend of mine. I've kept in touch over the years, but I, I wasn't quite that smart on the fly. And they walked away. And I thought to myself, there was a missed opportunity here because I just wish I could get that picture and then show the entire world, hey, this guy on the left thinks I'm Chris Chelios. Here's a few things that we need to decipher. One, Chris Chelios is 15 years older than me. I'm still in my 30s, I'm pleased to say. Secondly, he's a world-class athlete. He's shredded. Like, he's in unbelievable shape. I am, as previously mentioned, not in the best of shape. Thirdly, he's actually not that much taller than me. He's listed at 5'11". When I met him, I said, okay, he's 5'10". And I'm listed at 5'8", but I'm actually 5'7". So three inches, okay, you can quibble. But here's the crux of the issue, Rich. If you know one thing about Chris Chelios, he lived and died for USA Hockey. Why would you think Chris Chelios is wearing a Team Canada hat in the middle of a Detroit airport about to fly to Hartford? Wow. That is an amazing story, Adnan. Uh, Have you ever been uh, mistaken for any other NHL defenseman like Dennis Potvin or P.K. Subban or just just Chris Chelios? (laughs) Jim Pack. Uh, Victor Hedman, Jim Pack is a good one. Victor Hedman, I'm hoping to get recognized for the Lightning defenseman, fresh off winning the Norris. But no, uh, maybe Mark Howe back in the day. I had a similar skating style. But Roman, Pol- you've been you've been you've been mistaken for, you've been mistaken for Roman Pollock many times. Yes, <laughs> Curtis Lecision. <laughs> See now, see, see, right? We well, that that's exactly it now, because now you're speaking my language. Now you're bringing up hockey, and uh, you know it's like, gee, which obscure defenseman could we come up with? Well, Adnan right has now, been mistaken. He's been. Said he hasn't been mentioned. <laughs> but Huddy's been- name's on the cup though a couple of times, so you know he's not that obscure. Right. Adnan right. has been mistaken for Rejo Rutsalainen. We'll end it with then. <laughs> wait, wait. I'll just say this one because you know, being from where you're from, Adnan. Um, the name Nikolai Borshevsky always manages to come oh. out whenever I'm trying to impress like an old school Maple Leafs fan. Like, oh, that guy, because oh. I loved him. He was my yeah. guy when I was younger. Oh, the, the Nick, listen, the amount of Leaf fans, Pellegrino, of that era, like all they talk about is 92, 93. Cause all they <laughs> right. have is those, those guys. You'd think they'd won the Stanley Cup, much less not even been in the Stanley Cup, the way they're talked about revered. Now Rich will get a full dose of those guys all the time. All right, listen, Adnan, you've probably gone 40 minutes longer than I expected, but as always, it's uh, it's serious B-plus uh, material, and that's really all we're striving for here. It's just above <laughs> mediocrity. One last shout-out for Peter King, because on the topic of money and contracts, I never forgot this, and I want you to fill in the blanks for me in terms of memory. You know, I love Peter King. Before I getting to ESPN, my buddy Irving Ho sent his book to Peter King. Peter King signed it. Adnan, best of luck in the industry. Still have the book, of course. Whenever he'd come on the radio, he was great. One time in his column, I got to look up the 
player, but he said, and obviously the column was long, but he had, he found time to say Adnan Burke is the blank baseball player of ESPN. He does everything. He does it well. That meant the world to me. Nobody realizes how much these things mean to you. You think, well, you're on TV, of course, you're on ESPN. No, no, no. What matters to me is Peter King gave me that blurb. You know, what matters to me is Keith Oberman is my favorite broadcaster, and I can email Keith. I can get him on my podcast in the file, and we can talk about network and eight men out. These are the things that matter to people, not the, the adulation and the tweets. Peter King, fill in the blanks, Rich. I, I remember Terry McDonald wrote this story. He said that this is the kind of person Peter King is, who is now, for those who are unaware, retired from Sports Illustrated. He's going to work at NBC Sports. He said that once they were doing layoffs at SI, and Peter King went to his office and offered to give back a significant amount of salary just to keep other employees there. That is is true. that true? That is true, that and I believe, I believe uh, contractually, because of how his contract was set up, he couldn't do it based on the old Time Inc. bylaws. But yes, I believe that is a, that is a true story. That is amazing to me. Okay, like we talk often about the great people in our industry. Obviously, Ernie Johnson is unbelievable, the humanitarian efforts he does, and everyone knows what a quality individual he is. But I just wanted to mention that about Peter King because we get in this industry and everyone thinks money, 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 and every dollar counts, and I got family, I got kids, and I know Peter's got his dogs, and he loves his coffee. The fact he was willing to put his money where his mouth was, amazing. Great writer, Hall of Fame person. All right, Adnan, you have given shout outs to like at least 50 people on this podcast. And so I, I, I mean, I, if it gets me four more downloads, I'll appreciate that, but I'm not sure there's a translation there. So we'll really see how powerful the Adnan Verk uh, um, endorsement is when it comes to the downloads. Are you as you know, this item that KO is back? Listen, Oberman's back. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Adnan, it's fascinating. You're, you work for an organization that really has tried very hard because it believes it's a kind of a false narrative to get away from being the left-leaning, social justice warrior, wear an arm of the Democratic Party um, organization. So naturally, I mean, I feel like the person to hire to end that kind of thought process is, of course, Keith Oberman. That would be my kind of uh, <laughs> there. I will, I, say seri- I will say seriously, because I'm sure Oberman will somehow get a hold of this, that he's an excellent, he's always been a terrific sports broadcaster it it is it makes me laugh to no end though that espn in sort of (laughs) in trying to uh recalibrate a narrative which again some of it is unfair some of it not um ends up hiring (laughs) a guy who is once the face of msnbc all right anyway adnan listen i must move on to my to my next guest you know this i mean you have enough reps on espn radio Uh, you know what i'm saying let cal let calvin watkins get some airtime you want to go right now watch Hannity, which is on your DVR. You want to go watch <laughs> Laura Ingram. You got to subscribe, transcribe that stuff. Right, yeah. I totally get it. Go watch Fox News now available in Canada. I know. I I, I mean, uh, my dream meals would be uh, would be Laura, Sean, Tucker Carlson, and uh, um, and uh, and Peter King. There you go. Let's just give him a shout. He really he would he would enjoy that meal as well. All right, listen. Adnan Verk has signed a contract extension and. There were probably <clears throat> there were shouts of joy throughout West Hartford and Bristol, Connecticut when this happened. He, of course, hosts college football, college basketball, baseball tonight. You hear him on ESPN Radio. He has the Cinephile podcast. We're going to hear him do tennis. He's a man who will never sit in 34B when it comes to airplanes, only first class for Adnan Burke. Uh, he's probably the fifth most famous person to graduate from the score. And he has now established himself as the premier and principal guest of the Sports Media Podcast. Adnan, I know we joke a lot, but as always, uh, 
Your time is generous, and you are truly one of the most honest people when it comes to behind-the-scenes stuff. Because trust me, I if I had the Mike Greenberg, Scott Van Pelt, or some other people on this podcast, they would never have gone that road with contracts, and understandably so. So I, for those who are in the business who heard that, I appreciate it because I think they will appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I hope that there's some value gleaned within the Nikolai Borshevsky mention. And I'll be in Toronto end of next month. You, me, David Amber, second cup. Let's make it happen. All right, and only if we can sit in 34B. Amber and I will be there while you're, while you're at the front of the restaurant. <laughs> this is going to be the headline of this podcast. Why Amber is an elitist when it comes to air travel. I knew it. You know how, you know how every time I've told you, anytime I will interview in any, any setting, I will mention Renee Young? I will never now not mention Renee Young in 34B. That basically now... <laughs> That's the but two things I mentioned. Sure, they're gonna think it's like a bra size. Like, what do you what do you mention? Thirty four feet of vertical. Like, I know that those those two think there. those two things now are connected. All right, Adnan Verk, everyone. All right, uh, thanks again to Adnan Verk for a fantastic conversation. Before we get to Calvin Watkins of the Athletic, let me tell you that today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is brought to you by One Blade. A lot of men struggle with shaving, from ingrown hair to razor burn to just overall skin irritation. It's a painful chore that most men don't enjoy. Now there's a razor that takes the pain out of shaving and makes it an enjoyable experience that you'll actually look forward to. It's called One Blade. I know my producer, Lou Pellegrino, has had a lot of experience with One Blade. And Lou, you swear by this product, correct? I do. Uh, one of the things I can't stand when I'm shaving are the ingrown hairs. And with One Blade, I have not had one ingrown hair since I started using it. Take it from Lou Pellegrino. Take it from me. One Blade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving. From the perfect pivot in weight to the finest materials, such as ultra-high-grade German stainless steel. German, easy for me to say. High-grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom-quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand-assembled and serial-numbered. And every one blade is backed by a full 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if you're ready to have the best shave of your life, visit onebladeshave.com richard. That's onebladeshave.com slash Richard. Try it. Give it some time. And if it isn't the best shave of your life, simply return it. That's visit onebladeshave.com slash Richard. Onebladeshave.com slash Richard. And now let's get to our conversation with Calvin Watkins, a writer for The Athletic, Dallas-Fort Worth, and a longtime respected person in the sports media. All right. And as promised at the top, we bring in Calvin Watkins. He covers the Dallas Cowboys for the Athletic Dallas-Fort Worth. He is just on the beat for the Athletic, so we are colleagues now. And Calvin, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Here's where I want to start, because I love this quote. A couple years ago, you were profiled, um, about I think when you were at ESPN Dallas, about covering the Cowboys. And the one thing you said is this. You said, the one thing on this beat is there is always shit going on. <laughs> So I want to start there is what is the most challenging thing about covering the Dallas Cowboys and why? Uh, the, the number one thing is the owner. Um, he might be the only owner that I know of in sports, in, in North American sports. I don't know if there's an owner overseas in the Premier League or in some basketball league in R- Russia or France. Or Africa, but he's the only owner in sports where you got to talk to him after every game. He does a he does a twice a week radio show during the season 
that you have to monitor and that he might break some news on that radio show. And he'll talk about 20 minutes after every game. So that's the number one challenge is just monitoring the owner. And the owner will talk to everybody and anybody. It doesn't matter. If you want him to say, I think he should bench the quarterback, if you ask him the question 12 different ways, eventually you'll get the answer you want. So that, to me, is the biggest challenge. Yeah, I mean, I've covered this team for eight consecutive years, and, you know, I cover guys that got suspended. I cover guys who, you know, failed drug tests. I covered coaches who got fired. You know, I covered when Romo was resurgent. I was in Seattle when Romo fumbled the snap, but – there's nothing like Jerry Jones. Hmm. As an organization, ha- would you say they are forthcoming or not forthcoming and why? And I'm, so I'm talking about beyond Jerry, uh, the players, the administration. How, how forthcoming are they for reporters, in your opinion? Outside of Jerry, they are, you know, Jason Garrett, uh, he's okay. You know, he's probably like every, any other NFL coach. He's only going to give you so much, and that's fine. But the but Stephen Jones, who's like Jerry's number two, you know he'll give you information. Um, I think that's important. Um, and the Cowboys just have a just have this open door policy. They've always had that. Um, they don't believe in hiding everything because you're going to find out anyway. So why not just control the message? The message, and that's what they've always done. And it's it's pretty refreshing. Um, when I went to the Jets beat. And the PR people would ask me about, how do the Cowboys PR people handle stuff? And I go, they handle it, but they know we're going to write what we're going to write anyway. So you can't control the media, so just just tell them what's going on. And that's what the Cowboys are are great at. They'll tell you what's going on. I'm going to get back to the Cowboys, but you brought up the Jets, and this is pretty fascinating to me, Calvin. As someone who has lived lived in New York forever, the Jets are far and away. I I don't want to give hyperbole. There's very few teams in the NFL that find themselves in more dysfunction than the Jets. And they have quite often, obviously, monitored what the media says about them. What, what did you find was, at least in your position, the biggest difference between covering the New York Jets and covering the Dallas Cowboys? The difference was with the Jets, they were like the stepsister to the Giants. Because the Giants were the established brand, and this is how you do things the right way. You know, you conduct yourself properly. We get the right guys. And the Jets are kind of like these free-spirited guys that always are messing something up, whether it's the butt fumble, whether it's, you know, the star defensive player doesn't show up because the players have a birthday cake for him and he, and he, and he doesn't show up, whether the starting quarterback gets punched in the face by one of his teammates. You know, um, so there's always some dysfunction with the Jets. They're like, you know, they're like your little brother who's always getting in trouble, but your parents are too old to, you know, discipline him because he's like the fifth kid. So they're going to let him do whatever he wants. And there's no discipline there. And that's the hard part for like a guy like Todd Bowles, who comes from the Bill Parcells school of doing things the right way and trying to, get it done the way the Giants are, get, are getting it done or have gotten it done. So that's the biggest thing I noticed about talking to people who cover the Jets. And, even, you know, even their PR people are a little sensitive about things because they've been beaten up for so long. 
you know, they don't get the benefit of the doubt because they have been just your stepsister or your stepbrother that just keeps messing up. Calvin, there's, there's like, you know this because I know that you, um, you grew up in New York. Uh, I remember reading something about you, you know, you would read the daily news every morning. Um, when you were young, you, you always wanted to go into newspapers. So you've seen, you, you've, you're, you know, full well about the New York market. What's always interesting to me, again, as somebody who lived there, is I always thought it was a little overstated how competitive the New York market was, quote-unquote, versus some other markets. So I wonder, as a person in your position who's had to cover two very high-profile teams, would you, what, did, you, did you think the Jets was a more competitive beat than the Cowboys? Was the Cowboys more competitive? And, and what was your take between the competition in New York versus the competition in Dallas for reporters? I would say um, they're, I guess I was kind of blessed because when I covered the Cowboys, there was like eight or nine of us every day. And on the Jets, it's about six or seven guys covering the beat. Uh, I would say the competition is about the same to, to me. Um, however, something that I would think in Dallas would have been, that's nah, not a big deal, is a big deal in New York. Um, and case in point, we were talking to Christopher Johnson, who's the CEO of the Jets, and he said something innocuous like, you know, Sam Darnold might be a franchise-changing move for us. And I said, oh, okay. And I, and that was a good quote, but I didn't think it was like the end of the world type of thing. And all the other beat guys thought, oh, my God, this is, this is incredible. You know, he's putting everything on Sam Darnold's shoulders. And I'm like, well – that's self-explanatory because the Jets, anytime you draft a quarterback at number three overall, that is supposed to be franchise changing. So just because he said it, does that mean that it's the end of the world? So that to me was, you know, in Dallas, we would have taken a little bit more of a relaxed approach to something like that because you just would have said, okay, he's the third pick of the draft. Yes, we, there is expectation there. We don't need the owner to say it. We know it. So it's just hmm. a slightly different approach. But to me, the, the competitiveness of it was about the same, um, you know. Now, if you talk to guys who covered the Jets for longer than I did, they will say there was there were some crazy times when when Rex was the coach. There was always something going on, and I would contend. Well, when I covered Parcells and Wade Phillips and a little bit of Jason Garrett, there was always something going on. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, like my first year in the Cowboys beat T.O. had an overdose, you know, painkillers. You know, so right. You know, and I was, you know, that was such a long time ago. But and he talked to the, and he talked to the media the next day. You know, so I, you know, to me, it's just crazy. It's crazy. It doesn't matter if it's in New York or Dallas. It's it's the same. When you were um when you were covering the Cowboys when Terrell Owens was there, he's obviously been in the news lately, not only for his Hall of Fame, um, you know, getting into the Hall of Fame, but saying he's not going to come to the enshrinement ceremony. How did you find him? How did you find dealing with him as a media person? Uh, I liked Tio. He was he was cool. Um, when I first got on the beat, Todd Archer and I wanted to beat together. So, uh, so me and Archer decided to split the star players. So Todd took mm-hmm. Romo and I took Tio. Um, and I kind of liked T.O. He was a little, you know, he was eccentric and he was, you know, what it is. <laughs> but I got to know him pretty good. And I think the thing I always said to T.O. is, look, man, if you do something stupid, I'm going to write about it. 
okay? But if it's not your fault, you got to talk to me, you know? Like, I, I remember one time the Cowboys were in Atlanta, and D'Angelo Hall, I think it was, said that T.O. spit in his face during the game. So I text T.O., and I said, dude, the Falcons are saying you spit in one of their corners' face. I believe it was D'Angelo Hall. So you spit in his face. And T.O. was on the bus. And he said, no, that's not true. I had an Invisalign, and I was, we were talking trash, and saliva was just flowing. I didn't deliberately spit in his face. I did not. So from that perspective, he would get back to you. He would say, here's my side of the story. Whether or not you believe him or not, it's insignificant. It's our job to present the story, and it's our job to present both sides of the pitch of the story. And he, and, he, and he did that for me. Now, there were times he was mad at me, and that's fine. That's how it goes. But T.O. gave me great stories. Like, I heard he was falling asleep in meetings, and I asked him about it. And he, and he told me, yeah, I fall asleep in meetings. Then I called Jerry, and Jerry confirmed it, too. So that's just how it was. That's just how cool he was to deal with. You know, that's, well, I, I want to ask you this because, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a Hall of Fame voter. I've covered the NFL, but I don't cover the NFL right now. It, it really does not bother me in the slightest if Terrell Owens does not go to Canton. In fact, I quite feel like it's his decision, and if he wants to do it, he wants to do it. But I see so many... Or I've seen so many Hall of Fame voters, including some people I've worked with and like, who seem to take such outrage over this. Where, where do you where do you stand on this? He should be there. He should go. Um, uh, and I talked to him about. It. I saw him at some event here in New York, and he was very bitter. He he, he was he's still bitter. He thinks he should have went in there on the first try. But if you look at some of the great players in the history of the game, they didn't get in on the first try. Michael Irvin went in on the third try. I think Art Monk waited 10, 12 years maybe. Um, Chris Carter went in on his third or fourth try. So a lot of guys didn't get in on the first first ballot. Should he have been a first ballot? Yeah, he should have. But the way they vote is kind of convoluted in a way. Um, and I've talked to some of the voters um, and I respect all those guys. It's a tough job. But you know, he, he should go. I mean, if, I think, I, I think if, and I've been to the Hall of Fame, and it's, it's a really cool deal. It's a really nice event, and you should go, be honored, do the right thing. You know, give your little speech and get out of there. Um, but he's still bitter about things. And, and I said, I think you should, I told him, I said, you should go. I think it's a good thing. You know, now all these other guys who say they, should, they wouldn't have voted for him, if they knew he wasn't going to come, I, I just think that's a little silly. Either you're a Hall of Famer or you're not. If he believes he's a Hall of Famer, whether or not he goes to the to the ceremony or not, it shouldn't mean anything. Vote him in. And if he doesn't want to go, that's on him. But it shouldn't change your vote at all. And I, I saw where a couple of guys said they wouldn't vote for him. And I thought that was a little – I didn't think that was right. And those are guys I respect, but I disagree with them. It's, vote him in. You know, whether or not he goes shouldn't mean anything. Uh, Calvin, I appreciate you answering that. That's interesting. That's that's a that's an interesting perspective, and that helps me in terms of my own thought process. I want to ask you about newspapers because you have worked for many: the Fort Worth Star Telegram, the Dallas Morning News. You worked at Newsday, I think, twice. Yeah. And you worked at the <laughs> you work you worked at the Morning News. You now work for the Athletic. From your perspective, over the many years that you worked in newspapers. Where do you think the newspaper sports section stands right now and why? 
some of them are very good. Some of them I look at and I go, damn, this is all you got? <laughs> you know, uh, I think they need to change their mission statement. And and I, I talk to people about this at Newsday. Like, I, it, it boggles my mind why newspapers are still printing the box scores and the standings when everyone can get them elsewhere. And I asked that uh, of one of our editors at Newsday. And the editor told me people love to read the box scores and read the standings in the newspaper. I said, really? They go, yes. People still love that. So while me, you know, I'm 50 years old, and I think people are tired of, they're not going to read the box scores, but there are people who want to read their box score in the morning paper, you know. Um, I, it still boggles my mind that newspapers still go to the Super Bowl and all these events, and your team is not there. And when they talk about money, well, why, why are you spending money going to the Super Bowl and your team's not there? What are you going to get different than the local beat guys who cover the team for an entire year is going to get? Probably nothing. So when I, you know, and back in the day, newspapers covered those things so they can get AS, APSC awards and the, the triple crowns and all that. But, but nowadays, those things even matter. Your survival should matter. The, the bottom line should right. matter financially. So why are you continuing to go to the Super Bowl? Why are you going to the Olympics? If you have local people there, then yes, you should go, you know. But I think when you're trying to cut costs, like I remember being at the morning news and they were talking about we spend, I think it was 25000 in travel covering the Rangers. It might have been 25000 I remember covering the Dallas Cowboys and by myself on training camp, because training camps in California, it was about $10,000 in travel. If you're staying in a hotel for 24 days, you got a rental car, you're eating. And that's money. That's, that's, that's real dollars. You know, and when you talk about, oh, we're going to the Super Bowl for a week. Well, the, the Cowboys are not there, so why, why would you go? You know? So I, I think little things like that, and the papers are cutting back. I think finances are dictating a lot of things. And I just think you have to be smarter in what you, in what you do and how you spend your money. Um, for the most part, I, I still love reading like the Washington Capitals, their, their coach resigns. Well, I wanted to read the Washington Post. You know why? Right. Because they would have the insight on why he didn't come back. They had the best insight and they did. They had it better than ESPN. They had it better than anybody else because they would know. I still think there's a value there for a lot of sports sections. I just think financially they need to change their mission statement in terms of like, like Newsday, like for us. Like we sent three people to the Super Bowl. I went, Bob Walter went, and Tom Rock. And I enjoyed getting the Marriott points. It was fun, you know, but I knew nothing about the, the Patriots or the Eagles outside of it. What anybody else would have known, you know? And I can imagine how much money we spent on three people to go to the Super Bowl for a week. You know, that money could have went to something else. That could have went to, hey, we'll send Calvin to L.A. to do a profile on Sam Donald. Oh, we'll send Tom Rock somewhere. We'll send him to State College to do a big profile on, on uh, Saquon Barkley. You know, um, I just think how they use their resources has to change. Because if the, the bean counters are looking at these things, the sports editors need to look at these things too. That, that to me, 
is the biggest thing is the challenge I think sports editors have, you know, because everyone is still, you know, it's like the Cowboys. The Cowboys still act like they still live in the past. And some newspapers still live in the past. Dude, you got to move on. You know, do you care about the triple crown or do you care about surviving? If you care about surviving, yeah. you'll say, we don't care about sending three people to the Super Bowl anymore. For who, for what? It doesn't make sense. The Boston Globe and the Boston Herald is going to give you more comprehensive coverage on the Patriots Super Bowl run than I ever could. You know, than I ever could. And it's the truth. It's, it's just the facts of it. Nothing against any like Bob or Tom who do a great job, and I thought they did a pretty nice job. But to give you insight on the Patriots, I can't do it. And I was an AFC guy, you know. I wasn't writing to anything different than anybody else who didn't cover the team every day. I'd rather read, I'd rather read Mike Reese of ESPN or someone else who covered the Patriots of the Globe or the Herald more so than me who's writing about Brady. Yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast on resource management and what, what, where that should go heading forward, both not just for newspapers, for, for digital places like The Athletic, too, which we will get to. Before, um, before I talk about your, the reasons why you left Newsday for The Athletic, I did want to ask you about your family's background, because this was interesting to me. I read that your grandfather worked for Ebony Magazine and then went on to produce a monthly African-American newsletter called Negro Heritage. Mm-hmm. Is that where your love of uh, words or journalism, did it come f- float down from your grandfather, who obviously was uh, a pioneer, certainly when it came to being a person of color in the business for the time he was in it? Yeah, he was. Um, he was, uh, like, he was, when I was, like, a little kid, uh, this, this grandfather was on my father's side. So he lived in Virginia, and I was raised by my grandparents in New York. And so my grandfather would just send me these newsletters called Negro Heritage. And, and I'm like nine years old. I'm like, what is this? You know, I, I couldn't comprehend what it was, you know. And as I got older, I began to understand that, oh, this is the history of African-American people. <laughs> and then, you know, you be, as you get older, you begin to understand things a lot better and when I would sit down and talk with him, he would say, yeah, I worked at Ebony Magazine Circulation Department. And one of the things he wanted to do was he, he felt like Ebony Magazine should have had their own black history books because he felt like, who knows black history better than us? But Ebony Magazine didn't see the vision that he wanted, you know, to project, so he left and started his own thing. I think he eventually worked for the Treasury Department. He had like a, a TV show in Western Virginia on TV Access back then in the 70s and the early 80s. So, yeah, my introduction to journalism was through him. I like sports, so and I didn't care so much about politics or race because I cared about sports and covering games and, and that kind of thing. And, and I remember in high school, I was about to go to college. Or I was trying to figure out what to do. And we were talking, and my grandfather said, what's your favorite newspaper? I said, USA Today. He said, why? Oh, I kind of like it. He goes, why don't you read something more comprehensive? And I said, well, USA Today to me is really good. And I still think it's good. I like it. He goes, no, why don't you read the New York Times? Excuse me. And I said, the New York Times? He goes, yeah, read the New York Times. And I was like, okay. So he was just trying to broaden my horizons. And he goes, nothing against USA Today. Right. He just wanted me to do something different. You know, um, and so I did. 
So yeah, so he was kind of like my introduction to journalism. Um, like he knew nothing about sports, you know, nothing. So like when he would come to town to visit me, you know, we wouldn't go to a game. He would take me to like the World Trade Center. You know, he was going to lunch at the World Trade Center. And right. we you know, we go to Central Park or something. So yeah, but but now as I'm older, back uh, I'm at my went to my grandparents' house. They're both deceased now, so we're trying to sell their house. And I'm going through all their things, and I find all these old Negro Heritage um, um, newsletters. So you're flipping through it, and he's talking about what happened in, with Jim Crow laws. You know, he's talking about how we changed that in the South. You know, he's talking about Juneteenth and why it's so important in Texas, and you know. Um, and just reading about history you know, and that kind of thing. He's just trying to, you, you, you know, you, especially in these times where you, you want your kids to be aware of what's going on in the world and, and why we're in the situation we're in and, and how can we move forward. And you say, this is what we did back in 1972. This is what we did back in 1963. And this is how we overcame discrimination. And you read it in Negro Heritage and how he basically followed the history of black people in this country. And it is very, you know, as I said, when, when you're a kid and you're like, Man, I don't understand what this is about. And then when you get like 19 and 20, you go, oh, maybe I can figure it out. Then when you get 25 and 30, you go, now I know what he's talking about. You know? Yeah. And it'll, it'll happen to me when I, when I present it to my kids. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. And then when they get about 20, 21, they go, oh, this is what dad was talking about. Yeah, it uh, sounds like you're pretty fortunate to have your grandfather in your life. That's a guy who was definitely ahead of his time when it came to uh, that exploration. Um, I want to ask you, you know, you've now been in the business, Calvin, for a long time, as, uh, you know, I sort of stated where you're, some of the places you've worked, as you did. If, um, again, you're at a different stage in your career, of course, you're experienced, you have a reputation in the business. From From looking sort of down from your perch, how difficult or how, um, I wouldn't say easy, but are things easier for 20-something people of color to now get into the sports media business versus when you broke in 25 years ago? I think it's still hard. Um, I just think we need more. When we talk about diversity, to me, it starts at the top. It starts with sports editors. It starts with AMEs, publishers. When you have diversity there, then it filters down to the rank and file. Um, you know, when I look at, you know, when I go to press boxes, there's sometimes I'm the only black guy there. And I think I'm just used to it. <laughs> you know, the Cowboys beat was the first beat where we had two black guys on the beat, it was myself and Clarence Hill. You know, wow. when I covered the, the Rockets, it was me and Jonathan Fagan. Um, and then when I covered the Jets, I was the only black guy. You know, uh, now Manish Mehta, he's Indian. So he's of Indian descent. Um, but that was it. as only two minorities. So, but I, you know, when I covered the Texas Rangers briefly, I was the only minority on their beat. So um, I just think diversity starts at the top. It's, it's, it hasn't really changed that much in terms of how hard it is. It is hard. It's hard to for minorities, it's hard for women. Um, you just got to get more diversity in sports and, and, and editors, you know, and, and, and make a commitment to it. There are black guys out there that want to be, that you can hire to cover all kinds of teams, 
you know, like Newsday hired a um, uh, Rangers writer, it was Colin Stevenson, who's uh, uh, Jamaican descent. So you can right. find the diversity, you know, you know, Colin's covered hockey before, obviously. Yeah, for, in New York. Covered, right. Yeah, for the Daily News. So, yeah, so you just yep. got to make the commitment to it like Newsday did, and you can get a diverse staff. Um, I think when this beat, the Jets beat first opened, Kimberly Martin was a black woman, and she left to go to Buffalo. And I, and I think Newsday made a commitment where well, we want to fill it with an African-American male or female or Hispanic or, or, or whatever, a minority, a person of color, and they said they found me. Well, I found them. So, um, but it's all about making a commitment. You know, if you want to get a, as, as much as they want to get the APSC awards, how much you make the same strength and commitment to diversifying the staff? You know, you know, as much effort as you put into that, put into making sure that your staff's not all wholly white. You know, and that's what's so disappointing when you see people have an all-white staff, and you go, there's about two or three black guys you could have hired for that job, and uh, if you interviewed them and you didn't think they were that good, then fine. Hire the best guy for the job. I would never say hire a black guy over a white guy. I would never, ever say that. Hire the best guy for the job. But at least in your pool of people that you're interviewing, have a diversity. Have some diverse people there, you know, like the NFL. The NFL has a Rooney rule mainly because they weren't even giving brothers an opportunity just to put an interview. And then once they decide it, then you find a Mike Tomlin. Then you get a, a Tom Bowles. You know, then you get that opportunity to present your case in front of sports editors. Now, if I don't get the job, that's fine. You pick someone else, that's cool. You give me a fair shot. But give me a chance to interview. Give me a chance to try to get the job. That's all you're asking for. I'm not saying you hire me because I'm a brother. Hire me because I'm the best guy for the job. But you're not even going to interview me because you got five guys you're interviewing. They're all white guys. Put some brothers in there. Put some women in there. Give me some diversity in your pool. And I think that's all anybody really wants is diversity in the pool of people that you're interviewing. How much, um, how much did talk of diversity come up when you spoke with The Athletic and or when you agreed to take this job? None. Um, none at all. But, I mean, I think they were criticized when they, they had, I think they announced their college staff, their college basketball staff. And right. and I think they, they took a lot of heat for that. And even I noticed, I was like, whoa. You know, and I'm and I'm trying to think, they couldn't find any brothers and sisters, Hispanics, Asian, anybody? Anybody of color? So even I was taken aback by that. Um, so you have to figure out, well, who's doing hiring? You know, who's he ever hired in the past like that? So you just have to figure out who's doing the hiring, you know, why isn't there diversity on your mind? And I believe it is. I believe it's always on their mind that they're athletic. If not, then you wouldn't have me or Marcus Thompson or Tim Kamakami. I think we got, we got a brother in that covers the Oakland A's out there. Darnell Mayberry covers the Bulls. So diversity is important, um, but the, the, the numbers could be better, not just at the athletic, but everywhere, right. a lot of places. You know, the numbers could be better than you today. You know, when I got to Newsday, I was the only, before we hired Colin, I was the only, I was one of the only two black guys in the sports department. It was uh, a black copy editor and myself. I covered the Jets. And then we had two openings, and then we hired Colin, and then it was Colin and me. And then, the, and then Greg Long was, was a copy editor. So it was only, so there's three. Now I'm leaving, 
So I'm not sure if they were replacing you with a, a person of color or not. I really don't know. So I haven't asked. But um, you just want to, you know, you just want, as I said before, you just want to give people a chance. Just give me a chance. And if you don't like me, that's okay. That's cool. I can live with that. But just give me a chance. Sit down in front of you, present my stuff. And if you say, hey, you're not good enough, I'm okay with that. I'm a, grown, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. But when you're not even going to give me a chance to interview, that's what upsets a lot of people. Uh, I've been blessed to have a lot of opportunities to interview and sit in front of people. Um, I think people think I do a pretty good job. So I was blessed enough to, to sit and talk to the people at the athletic and they like me. I like them. Um, I was blessed enough to talk to people at news there and they like me and I got hired by them. So I was, I was very, very humbled by that. Um, but there are a lot of people that don't have those opportunities that I've had. And you just hope that they, they get those opportunities one day. I appreciate you answering that. I do think um, I think these guys are committed to diversifying the ranks, and I think you've seen that in some of the later hires. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt the numbers can improve. Numbers can improve, and listen, I say that obviously as a white male in this business who has had all the advantages that come with being <laughs> a white male. But from your hires, Lisa Dillman, Antonio Morales, and if you look at sort of the latest hires uh, from the Athletic over the last six months, I think mm -hmm. they've. I, I think the, I think the founders have shown a seriousness on this. I, th I do also believe the numbers will get better. But again, I think both um, Calvin and I agree. Ultimately, you know, the receipts are there, and we'll know if this is a serious process or if not. But I think it. I think at this point, I I, I think they've headed in, in in an honest um in an honest direction. At least that's oh yeah, that's they do. My yeah. Read. The, oh, uh, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, I mean, I've never. I've never felt that they didn't care. I think, I think they honestly, to be honest with you, they came after me for this gig and I turned them down. And then I know they went after oh, another I didn't person know that. of That's color. Yeah, I turned them down. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> and then they, then they talked to a, a friend of mine, a person of color, for the beat, and he turned them down. And then they talked to a, a woman. So, it's not, so, yes, the athletic was determined. To the, you know, have a, you know, they were determined to find a person of color or minority, however you want to say it. So, yeah, so I'm not trying to say they, they didn't care. They do care because I, I kind of know how this job opened up and I know who they talked to for the gig. Uh, some of those people are friends of mine. So, <laughs> so, um, so then they, they made a strong effort to, to do that, and which is good, and they should be credited for that. Here's the uh, here's the last one for me, and you're a really interesting person to talk to because you went through it. You worked for ESPN Dallas. How, how long did you work for ESPN Dallas for? Uh, well, I worked at ESPN for like eight years. So ESPN Dallas, I guess, lasted five, maybe four and a half, five, okay. four and a half years, something like that. Yeah. So you're a good person to talk to because at one point in your career, you were part of sort of the ESPN local sites experiment in terms of trying to get into a certain market, compete with the local newspapers there, and beat them locally. The athletic um, model is obviously much different than ESPN, ESPN's city sites, not to mention that ESPN city sites, I think so often, I think you'd even agree with this, they're almost a marketing tool for ESPN. That said, you live this for a couple of years in terms of you know, a, a, a place that is you have to pay to get certain content for your local market, mm -hmm. at least online. Now, you really have to do that sort of in other places too, but 
What what do you think of the athletics model sort of long term? Are you like me of the belief that the only way good sports journalism can survive long term is if one people pay for it, but even beyond that, you have to convince people like the way Netflix has convinced people that this is just an an important thing for them when it comes to spending their discretionary income? A little bit of both. Um, yeah, like like I go back to Newsday. If you want local news, you got to pay for it. So if you want good sports coverage, you got to pay for it. Um, now, the athletic's not going to write the, like, say, for instance, David Irving, who I wrote about for the athletic the other day, he got suspended by the Cowboys. Well, I'm not going to write a news story for the athletic. I'm just not, because you can get that anywhere. Right. But, but what I'm going to write is, I'm going to write, what does it mean? You know, or am I right? All right, he's suspended. This guy's going to replace him, and here's why. So I'm going to give you something different that maybe the other guy, the other publication is not going to give you because these could be limited in space. You know, um, one of the great things I like about the athletic, we're not trying to write 12 stories a day. Who's got time to write? Who's got time to read 12 stories a day? Who's got time to write 12 stories a day? I don't. I got other things to do. So, I mean, I could write two stories a day and be done with it and keep it moving. And they're going to be quality stories. So I do believe that model will work. It should work. Um, you've seen it with the, with the Washington Post and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. They're charging you for their content. Um, I think the Daily News has started to charge you for content. Um, it's, it's the yep. way to go. I was talking to my wife the other day about our cable bill. I said, it's high, it's high as hell. So I'm like, okay, I pay for Netflix, right? So, all right, so I'm going to so keep Netflix. So, but do I really need Showtime and Stars and HBO? Do I really need all three of those? You know, because all I, but I do like boxing. So either I'm going to try to get an illegal feed and watch it, or I'm going to have to go to the fight and watch it myself. But for whatever I'm going to do, I'm trying to cut down my cable bill. I'm trying to cut down costs. So if you're a sports fan and you go, okay, my cable bill is a lot cheaper now because I'm not watching as much TV and I don't need all these channels. So what am I going to read? So what am I going to read? Oh, I'm going to read the athletic because a, they're not going to, I'm not going to have to read a bunch of pop-up ads and I'm going to get some quality work. And let's be honest. If I'm, I'm a Yankee fan, so I'm going to read what George King can write on the post. I'm going to read my boy, Eric Bowen in, in Newsday, you know, and I'm going to read our guy, Mark, at, at The Athletic. That's it. You know, I'm going to read those three guys, but I'm reading everything. And I think the editors know everyone's reading everything, but we're going to give you the best stuff, and that's what you're paying for. Calvin, I'm, uh, I'm beyond psyched that you're, you've joined The Athletic. I, I've liked your work for a long time. I think this is a terrific hire. Uh, you know. Sorry, Newsday, my old hometown paper, but you got to take the L here. I love Newsday. <laughs> so do I. I grew up reading uh, Verducci, Peter King, Neil Best, all those guys. Yeah, my hometown Neil paper. Best. He's the best. I, I mean, Newsday is, is like one of the last. I was telling Clarence Hill this. I was like, Clarence, Newsday is like the la- one of the last papers that does things the traditional way. We're like, we're like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, we're like a lead, no cider. You know, that's, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. There are very few places that you can still have a space to do that, you know, and that's what makes it kind of cool. Like, oh, this is how we used to do things, you know, but we don't do them that, that way anymore. They're in a good position because, you know, obviously Long Island has millions and millions of people, 
but there's no other paper there. I mean, sure, Long Islanders can get the New York Times and the Daily News and the Post, but the Daily News and the Post and the Times are not covering Long Island. So Newsday, if they can play it right, they should exist for a long, long, long time. And I agree with you. It's they've they treat sports they 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 treat their audience with respect when it comes to sports, and that's something I've always appreciated. Oh yeah, yeah. Like 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 things the box scores. And that means they was having a conversation, and it was like, he was like Calvin. People want to read the West Coast box score. I go for real. They go yes. They care about the Giants Cardinals game that ended at like one fifteen a.m. in the East Coast. They want to read that box score. Okay, you got to give the people what they want, right? <laughs> yeah, I always did like I liked West Coast. I always liked West Coast box scores when I was in the uh, when I was a kid in New York. I always felt like I was more connected to the world. That's pre-internet, obviously. <laughs> um, all right, Calvin Watkins is uh, he covers the Dallas Cowboys for the Athletic Dallas Fort Worth. He's just joined the Athletic uh, in the last couple of weeks. Was at Newsday for a while. Check out uh, check out his stuff on the Athletic, and let me make sure I have his. Uh, Twitter handle so that we'll give that out as well. It, it's okay. Make double. I want the double check. It's his name just run together. So it's at C A L V I N W A W A T K I N S at Calvin Watkins. Check him out. He's closing in on fifty thousand followers. You could be the fifty thousand follower if you hurry after this. I was very nice of you to say that. I'm kind of touched right now. You're right. Yeah, I'm just trying to impress your kids, Calvin. They'll care about the fifty thousand. I'm trying. I'm trying to get to fifty thousand for like the last year. I'm just. It's hard. I know. If if you're not purchasing, if you're not purchasing fake followers, it's not easy. I hear. I hear. I hear you. All right, Calvin, man. Listen, thanks. I hope our uh, I hope our paths cross along the way, even though we're all working in different cities. And uh, and I'll definitely be reading you for sure. I appreciate you joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, thank you, man. And very much. Can I tell you something? I'm I'm a first time, long time with, with all your podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. I I uh, I appreciate that. All right, Calvin Watkins, everyone. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Adnan Burke and Calvin Watkins. I know this is a little long, but uh, both excellent guests. Uh, Adnan, I could talk to Adnan forever. He's just too much fun to talk to, and incredibly honest. Yeah, trust me. Most people do not ever go near the kind of stuff he went to in contract negotiations. Uh, hopefully, he doesn't get uh, dinged by um, by uh, ESPN uh, PR, who I'm sure may give him a talking to about uh, being too forthcoming. But it's important, man. Young young broadcasters can really val- get value from what Adnan had to say, and even ESPN PR should realize that. Anyway, previous guests: Carissa Thompson, Joe Tessitore, as Adnan mentioned. Peter King, How to Cover the World Cup with Grant Wall, and uh, Vern Lundquist, Jason Starr, Ken Rosenthal. The list goes on. Please check out the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. Sign up on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can also get it on um, some other places, including Google Play and Stitcher. For Lou Pellegrino, who did a great job of producing this podcast for Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.